Welcome to episode 286 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Being busy does not equal being a successful business owner, nor does having a lot of expenses or a website or expensive software, not even an email list. Know what you need to be a successful business owner? What you need to have a successful business is one thing, a product or service that sells. That's it. Now, the question is, how do you create a product or service that sells? Stay tuned until after this week's interview to learn the answer. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest considers herself an accidental advocate, motivating others to embrace the kind of social behaviors that trigger societal shifts. Experienced in fostering open dialogue in professional settings, she helps build awareness and visibility of equity, diversity, inclusion, and cultural competencies that serve as a foundation for improved collaboration, cooperation, and communication. She's an inclusion activist whose TEDx talk, Coming Out of Your Closet, became a viral sensation. Her intrepid, relatable, and intrinsically comical style has made her an in-demand speaker, including events at Microsoft, Lockheed Martin, Bank of America, and keynoting at an LGBTQ conference at Harvard University. She's a speaker, equality advocate, and author of Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. Please join me in welcoming Ash Beckham. Hey, thanks, Ravi. Thanks so much for having me. Ash, thanks for joining us from your place in Boulder, Colorado. Um, Really looking forward to this conversation. So as you know, we're talking about sort of building strong networks, but the context here is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I would define leadership as um, both a willingness and an ability to be the example to be the example of striving, maybe not even achieving to be the best version of yourself. And, and I thought about when I had, when, when I saw that question, I, I thought about when the first time was that I really felt that. And I will have to go back to um, my junior year in high school and I was on the basketball team and I was a terrible basketball player. Um, I just, I did not have the skill set to be a very good basketball player. The coach was a softball coach. And so I think he just, was trying to be supportive of me, but I realized that my role on that team was to make the starters better and to really step it. You didn't need a tremendous skill set to be able to play defense. And so that was my job. So I was making the freshman point guard who was incredibly talented. My job was to give her headaches at practice and prepare with the mindset of the opposing team. And, and I say that, I, th- I think that was the first time I, I really learned it because I think other players, um, both the starters and and kids on the rest of the team, uh, really saw the work ethic that I brought to that and that you can lead as a bench warmer, right? That leadership is um, not necessarily a position, but a disposition. And and so if that's kind of your frame on it, anybody can lead. And and that to me feels not only inspiring, but also attainable. And, And so I think that was the first time that I was like, you don't have to be the best kid in the room to be 
the leader? And then what does that look like in the rest of your life? I don't know how I lived this long without hearing the phrase, leadership isn't a position, it's a disposition. But I had to call that out. And that's got to be on a bumper sticker because that's amazing. Isn't it so great? Yeah, my my buddy, Nikki Rivera, uh, is a leadership uh, professional too. And, and so I have to give her a shout out for that one. But yeah, I love it. It's so great. It, it you know applies to everybody. It's great. Yeah. I love that we were able to give a shout out too. So, and I, and I also really appreciated sort of the definition you started with, which is like living as the example, you know, and, and that others will witness and that then you tell this amazing story. And I appreciate that you went back to, you know, we, some people were like, well, let's see way back. Let's see. I was 30 and I'm like, no, let's go, let's go back a little bit um, that, you know, to be not the best and to not be seen as a leader in the sense that you're a starter or like people look up to you for your, your playing ability, but that you found a niche, you found a way to still provide great value. And that you, it's amazing is that you're able to figure that out on your own, as opposed to just being hung up on the feeling of not being adequate. Like that's hard to do, particularly when you're a junior in high school and you're measuring yourself against your peers and like what looks cool, but then you probably looked really cool to people as they realized what you were doing and like how hard you were working. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's profound things for someone that young to figure out. Were there people in your life at that time that were sort of giving you, I don't know, the supports that you needed to, to be that kind of full self-confident person? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was just so purpose-driven, right? It was like, I could go and work my tail off and I was never going to make the starting five, right? That was never going to happen. Like it was a good day if I got in the game and that was, I wasn't going to change that in a two or three month season. Like I, I play, it was a public high school, but it had an incredibly developed and highly skilled women's sports program um, driven by just a hall of fame coach that we had there. Um, and, but it didn't like, I needed an attainable goal. Like I needed to have a purpose on that team. That's just kind of the kid that I was and the human that I am. And, and I got really, you know, I'm sure as you do in all phases, but certainly as a 16 year old would, you know, come home and, and complain and figure it out. Oh, I wish I would have done this and I should have paid more attention to basketball camp or whatever, you know, but, but then I, I just remember my, you know, my mom was always like, you're so good if he just gave you a chance. And my, I was just like, mom, I'm not that good. <laughs> like you can't, heart doesn't score baskets. Like it doesn't, it, that doesn't matter. And so my dad was like, well, what, like, what can, what would motivate you to go every day? Like, what can you bring? What do you do really well? Like, you don't have to have a three point shot to play defense. Like you're good at that. Do that. Like figure out like you're practicing a lot. This is a lot of your time. And so what, what can you do to make it enjoyable? And, and, and so that was, that was kind of the driving force. And I needed, you know, I mean, I probably still now, but as a kid, like, you know, give me a goal. And I was like a dog with a bone. Like that was it. That was, that was my job. I needed a role. And sometimes we don't get the role we, we want, but if we can have a broad scope of what our skill set could be. And, and again, you know, I wasn't the captain of the team, like, but, and, and you, you just kind of change your perspective because the best version of me was a contributing version of me. And the contributing version of me was that practice squad. Like, that's just, that was it. And, and that, like, I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow, but I would have probably quit the team if I wouldn't have been able to embrace that role. 
and it wouldn't have been as positive of an experience. And I was significantly better at other sports. But if I think of like my leadership and perseverance motivations, they come from the times I didn't start, like the sports I wasn't good at. That's to me is like a little tangent. But now when kids are trapped into one sport at eight years old, like the beauty of being able to play multiple sports is you're not always the star. And you really can learn how to be a supportive leader, how to be a good teammate when you don't play the one thing that you're really, really good at. Like I was a starter on the softball team for four years and barely made this basketball team. And I learned more from basketball than softball. Man, I know you have young kids as do I, and there's so many lessons here for parents. Like it's as you're telling these stories, I'm like, you know, the, the response from your mom, which, which is a very supportive adult response, like, oh, you got it, kid, you, you know, you're really good. They should just give you more of a chance and like, not, not a realistic response and not even listening very well to what you were feeling, but still wanting to really give you that love, you know, like pour the love on, like, but that's gonna like heart, like heart's not gonna sink baskets. I love that. But yeah, I mean, um, it just wasn't. But I love, but your dad's response is the one I want to make sure I remember because he asked you to redefine what this experience was going to be and that you were able to give yourself sort of the, the goal, but like, what would make this meaningful for you? What would make this like worth all the effort and time if, if the goal had been to start or even to play every week? <laughs> Like even once, like th those, those were not super attainable goals. And then you would have been really demoralized. And I think that's true for, for life. Like we often are not given the exact right situation to perform in our best. We're not excelling all the time. And as you just pointed out, like it's the times where you struggle, right? That you often, you're learning a lot. If you have time to reflect and all that, it's not tragic, right? You know, you're, it wasn't tragic that you weren't great at basketball, but it was still, I mean, 16 and maybe it, maybe Maybe it was. I don't know. You know, it's hard when you're 16. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure in, in the moment, but exactly what you said. And the other piece was I could define my success however I wanted to be. Like if I went in that day and I learned, I mean, I was a 16-year-old kid learning other teams' defensive structures. Like my understanding of the game expanded dramatically. And it made me incredibly versatile as a player to be able to do that. I think it like segued really easy into coaching and leadership and all of those things because you understand the world outside of your skill set, right? And so I think that was a huge part of it. But then also I was always as somebody that grew up in team sports, like the success of the team was always the most important thing. And so knowing my role, knowing what a good day was for me, it kind of freed me to be this you know, cheerleader on the bench and this like kid that always won one more lap. Like I just, I embraced that and it made me in my own world at the end of the day, a successful teammate. And, and that again, freed me of the data, you know, the, the score sheets and the data and what the box scores look like and how many minutes did you play? Like those were always going to be disappointing to me. It was never going to be what I wanted it to be, but that just wasn't who I was. And it would have been a disservice to the team to satisfy that goal or to have parents that push for that or anything beyond that. Like I was exactly where I should have been. I just needed to realize that and that there could be greatness in that, right? Like the, my, that was not 
limiting in any capacity. I just had to see it through the right lens. So interesting to hear you compare this to your experience um, starting in a sport that you were really good at. And, and what you just mentioned about kids being sort of put into a track now, you know, like my kids, uh, six, my oldest is a four and six year old and six year old, he's just not a team sports kind of kid. And, um, and then I, and I also think like, if he's not now, like in two years from now, like his classmates who were really into it right now are going to be like two years ahead of him. Like, like he's just not going to be ever be like, it's not, it's just not going to be his thing. It'd be really hard to catch up because of the way kids are like groomed (laughs) into a sport. And, um, and we're like, we're excited to sort of see where his passions do lie and like explore that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's so many lessons here as parents. I can't help but stop thinking about that. Um, I'm curious though, like you had this sort of uh, sports moment, you know, like this is a, a highlight of your, your high school years. It sounds like you were very big into team sports. Did, did that translate into where you were headed next? Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? Did you go off to college and have a plan? Yeah, I think, well, I, um, let's see, I, I went off to college and my plan was to define myself in complete opposition of my parents. So I was going to be, they were both entrepreneurs small business owners in our town. And I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted like the C-suite power, you know, I, well, it was like the 80s. So like power pumps and the power suit with the shoulder pads, like I wanted it all. I wanted that life, right? I wanted to live in a big city and do all the things. And so I went to, went to college, went to business school, still played sports there. There was that social piece of it that I really, really liked. And it like gave me these traits to be driven and like aligned very well. And both my parents own their own businesses. So I feel like um, a lot of times there's just like the innate things that, you know, like you don't know because it's like just what you talk about at the dinner table, but like it's, there's lessons learned there as much as you'd want to deny that as a kid. Um, And then I, so I did that for a little bit and I, I don't think, you know, like with a lot of our parents, probably like I didn't see, um, the benefits of it. I didn't realize the benefits of it because it was just what I knew. And so I, um, I think once worked for a company for like 18 months (laughs) and was like, I got to do my own thing. Like, there's no way I can't, I just like the root and my sister went to different, she went to higher ed, but has always worked in large organizations. Her husband works in a large organization. Like Mandy, she was the youngest and, and she kind of tracked that way, not necessarily in opposition, but, um, maybe more security than, entrepreneurship has. And I like, couldn't, didn't want to be told what to do, wanted to be the decision maker. And so kind of took this path of entrepreneurship to get to where I am right now. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I I mean, not regrettably now, I I think it was to get a little bit of time and a little bit of distance and to leave Ohio gave me the perspective of actually this, this entrepreneurial lifestyle is pretty good fit for me so it's it's funny it's almost like you try to be alex p keaton and and it just didn't work out yes exactly that was like it that was what i wanted if i could have you're like no my parents are cool and all known businesses Ah, i'm gonna work for the man yeah totally absolutely it was like like power moves and and then you're like oh this is not this is not good no and then you look back and you're like oh you know my parents like my dad coached every team I had because he had the flexibility in his schedule. And like, yeah, he worked on Saturdays, but you know, it's just like a different, you can't, when you're in it, you can't see it. And, and I mean, they could have been anything and I wouldn't have wanted to be it. 
You know what I mean? Like that's just I mean, kind that's, of, that's again, parenting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just like, yeah, that's in, in high school, you want to get as far. We have a, we have a four-year-old and a one-year-old and my four-year-old is now like interested in what people do for work and whatever. And he went to the dentist and he wanted to be a dentist. And, he wanted to be, and then at the end of the day, he's just, like every job that he finds out about, he's like, do they get to go home at the end of the day? Like he just, it's partially COVID, partially being four. He like, and, and I'm just like, oh, I really hope that lasts. Like, I know it's not, I know in 10 years, we're going to be having the opposite conversations, but I'm going to embrace it as long as, as long as we can have it. Yeah. I love that. So, um, when you went to school though, you probably, you picked up skills and a network that you wouldn't have had. I mean, there's, there's sort of like, uh, other things, other benefits, even if it wasn't career tracked for you. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons people always say like they go to an Ivy league school or something like that is to have a certain network. Did that help when you decided to go on your own into entrepreneurship or was it the networks that your family had? Like, how did you decide what that was even going to look like? What skills had you acquired? How did you, how did you dream up what that first offer or product was going to be? Well, I, I would say my net, my college network, my high school network to a certain extent, but I would say my college network really gave me the foundation to be more authentic like to be exactly who I was. And I, if, you know, that's like part of college, I think, right. Is, is that for me, I went, you know, two and a half hours away from my family, but still, you know, li- lived pretty independently and made independent decisions. And, and there was, it really, it opened my eyes outside of my upper middle class, suburban, mostly white, mostly heterosexual, cisgendered, vision of what was right and wrong and where people lived and parents that were high school sweethearts and married, you know what I mean? It like blew my lens open into all of the things and that you could be those things and be successful. You could be those things and still have friends. You could be those things. And it was through, again, through sports. So I picked up um, ice hockey in college um, and uh, they had a club, it was a club team at Ohio state and um, I was a, I was a terrible skater once again. Um, but I was a goal or I was a, um, catcher in softball and they're like pretty similar skill set. <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to in theory be like the best skater on the team. That was not me, but I was pretty good at stopping things coming at me. Um, and, and so that was kind of my network and that was a very, very diverse as opposed to what I had grown up with. Um, and that really gave me the foundation and the confidence to be, um, I don't even know if I was willing to embrace my authenticity, but at least be aware that there wasn't one way to be, I think, which is what I, you know, what I came out of school or I came out of high school thinking probably because it's all I knew. Did you graduate in uh, high school in the eighties, nineties? Uh, 91 high school. I'm, five so year I'm 92. Okay. We're very yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, you I'm go. just like, there's so much in your story that I'm like, yep, I can recognize mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. I grew up in Long Island, uh, suburban, oh, there you go. like, you know, uh, and then you go to a school and you're like, wow, there are people from all over the world here. This is amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did, so did you come out in college then? Is that when this all started? I did. I mean, ish, you know, do a couple people. Um, and then it was more, I needed, I, I for me, I felt like I needed some distance. So left college, went to grad school in Colorado. And that was really um, I, I needed like a little bit more. I feel like I knew to 60,000 people went to Ohio state and I still felt like I knew everybody because half of my high school went there. 
but that, you know what I mean? It was just a different, um, I needed some autonomy and some anonymity to come out. I think, um, that I didn't feel like I had there. And again, that's like all my lens, you know what I mean? Like, that's just what I, what I thought and saw in the, in my experience at, in, at that age. But yeah, then when I was out in Colorado, pretty, pretty quickly after that, everything kind of, um, became more clear. Yeah. And, and rather this is airing in pride month. So happy pride to everyone. Oh, so. happy pride. <laughs> so, uh, I'm curious. So we didn't actually talk about what the offer was. Like how, what did you decide to do? What was the, oh, I had a, the... a vegan Indian food cart that went to did. music festivals around the country. No, no, this makes total country. sense. Of course you did. A vegan Indian not food a ve- cart. Exactly. I'm not vegan. I'm not Indian. Of course. I love Indian food, but that was, uh, I was, when I was working for that company, the like only company I've ever worked for, um, there was a coffee shop down the street and there was a guy that had, who we became good friends with who owned the coffee shop. And then he was, he had had, he and his wife had had kids and he was kind of getting out of food service and was going to start doing real estate and, um, was selling both coffee shop and this vegan Indian thing. And so I bought it from him, borrowed money from my parents. And my dad is like, uh, an incredibly was an incredibly supportive guy. And he, um, but he was like, Judy would do the math on like how much it is. I was like, do you know how many bowls of food you have to sell per hour to pay for? I mean, it was like very, he's like super pragmatic, but also loves, he was like, if he, in a different life, if he could have been a carny, he would have like loved carnivals, loved all everything about that. Oh, we always went to the fair, like all the things. He loved that stuff. And so he was, there was like the vegan Indian thing. He wasn't really sure of, but the carny thing, he's like, it's, that's great. So I did, that was like the first business I ever had. And I um, took it around for probably, I mean, I still do it. We go to one festival a year still in Telluride, Colorado. Um, but I was doing like 20 shows a year, Coachella to Bonnaroo to everything in between. Um, haul, you know, drive my little forerunner hauling this yeah. <laughs> trailer behind me all over the country. That's so, a really yeah, physical that was, job. That's like a very hands-on, you know, talk, yeah. people talking about like, you know, as an, oh, you don't get paid by the hour, <laughs> you know, find a yeah. way to package. And you're like, I'm selling one bowl at a time and I have to set up yeah. and I have to break down and I have to. Yeah. You got to <laughs> clean it. I mean, it was, it was a good, it was a good lesson. It was a really simple, the setup was really simple. You only needed one cook. There was no prep food. I didn't need a refrigerated truck. Like it was all the things that made it really easy and like pretty low. It was really hard to lose money. It was just like, do you make enough money? But just like you said, you know, sleeping on the ground, five days a week for seven months was fine in my twenties by my late thirties. I was like, "Mm." it also isn't like the most conducive lifestyle for relationships. And you know what I mean? Like, it just was like, it was a good, I had a super, I had a great run with it. And that was about the extent of it. It was, it was good, but we still do it now. It's like, we go down to a bluegrass festival and tell you ride just to pretty much like have it be a vacation. And if I recall, like a big shift for you was you, you did a talk, not your TEDx before that. Um, one of these Sparks ones or something? Is that right? Yeah, Ignite, exactly. Ignite, and yeah. So we did, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, same. Yeah. So we, uh, so I was here and I had like, so I had gone down this entrepreneurial path. I was like, I'm not going to get another job. And so I was a contractor. I was like, you know, had a lot of things going. And finally, after about 10 years, had enough of them were consistent that felt it wasn't like, rushing back from one thing to pick up a shift to bartend when I got back. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was a, still a hustle, but it seemed like, Hey, this might actually work. Like I might have enough of these things where it actually works out. 
and hadn't done anything creative in, in a long time was like in this very pragmatic, like live in the hustle mode. And because part of it was like, I wanted this flexibility to be able to like go home when my sister had a kid and like this freedom of movement that was like so core to entrepreneurship that I didn't see in my family, which I experienced and all of the benefits from that, but didn't like see um, was something that was just so valuable to me. And so I was doing the hustle to, to be able to do all that stuff. So, um, so I finally kind of put enough things together and, and went to this event. I'd always wanted to go to it and they did it multiple times a year in Boulder. Um, and when I was gone or didn't buy tickets in time or whatever, and finally went and it's, um, you have five minutes, exactly the slides auto advance every 15 seconds. So it's like enlighten us, but make it quick. And I mean, you, I would assume that you're, I've I can it. listen to anybody. Yeah. There yeah. You I've done one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and you can not, listen to anybody for five minutes. Yep. Like five, I will listen to, you could talk about paint drying for five minutes. And I, if you were like, if I, if I like bought into your personality and you were passionate about it, I got five minutes for that. Right. So that was the first one. I went to this event and there was this guy, second guy that went was um, talked about his um, ups and downs with weight loss. And like, A, nobody in Boulder talks about that. Men never talk about it. And this guy was like so authentic and funny and, and like, evoked this emotion in the uh, me specifically but within the whole audience of just like you were just on this roller coaster with this guy he was so good not a professional i think his talk still has like a hundred views like it's crazy but this i was like that i want to do that i want to evoke that emotion i bet i could do that and so then the next game it came up i was like all right i'm gonna apply i'm gonna try to do it i'm gonna see if i get in and um but i knew it was gonna be something important so it was um but not about me that like seemed weird, but it was um, prior to marriage equality. So it was like using the word gay in a negative way. And so like, how can you kind of engage people on this level to, to change their behaviors? Not because it's like politically incorrect and you're like shaking your finger at them, but like you get them to understand the impact of what they're saying. Right. Cause Boulder's like a progressive place and, but you would still hear it and you're like, you don't really mean that. And if you knew how that made me feel, maybe you wouldn't say it. Maybe you just don't know. Right. So that was kind of the impetus of that of that talk. And then I was, I mean, great audience here. Um, super, super great safety net to have kind of the, my first public talk. Um, and they got some traction online and, and they kind of went from there. Wow. I mean, you, you put yourself out there. I mean, I think that's, that's a big piece of the story here is that, you know, you, you were just kind of hustling and, and going for the next gig and, and trying to piece together an existence and hold on to this idea that, you know, freedom is important as an entrepreneur. I, I don't have many people I know that quit their, you know, 45 hour a week jobs to work 80 hours a week as an entrepreneur. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. So you were holding tight to the idea that flexibility, if not freedom, then, you know, to think, oh, I want to do something kind of creative and fun, um, but, but real, like, I think you wanted to have that authenticity even then. Um, and it sounds like, the work you were doing, what, what was the gig work? Like you said, you were doing some contract work and stuff. Was it in the path of DEI or not at all? No, not at all. Like it, my outness was like, you know, shaving my head and walking down the street. Like yeah. you hold my girlfriend's hand on Pearl Street, which is like as supportive as it can possibly be. Like all the gay bars closed in Boulder because everybody is everywhere is so open. Like truly that's what it felt like. The best brewery I've ever been to in my life is owned by a gay guy who's out. You know what I mean? Like it was, a, it's a very out progressive place, college town, all the things. Um, and, and so, but I wasn't doing any activism at all. Like that was my thing was like, I'm here, I'm out. Like there's no mistaken that I'm a lesbian. So that's enough. 
And like, if that, if that works for you, great. And if it doesn't work for you, I don't really care. And then had then did this talk and then had this realization of like, well, maybe, you know, there's some power that comes from that. And, you know, I was kind of like, it's not everybody to be out. If you can be out, great. If you can't be out, that's your own problem. But then not really, there is like zero empathy because you're like in your own journey. And why can't everybody just get here? I remember having like a, just a um, such judgment around my friends, specifically those that were back in Ohio that I went to college with that I was like, just come out. How can you not be out? Like I'm in like six months ago, I was in the closet, but didn't matter. Like I was like, come on, why can't, how can you not be out? This is crazy. It's, it's such a weakness. It's kind of, and then, and then you like take a second. You're like, people would say these things if they felt empowered to say these things. And I like have the privilege of being cisgendered, the privilege of being white. The, I have all of this privilege and I have to use that for good. So if I, if somebody's going to give me a microphone, I have a responsibility to my community to speak for people that can't speak yet, or maybe can see some relatability and then yeah. they speak up like that's such a huge piece of leadership to me is like i'm not telling you this is the way to do it this is just the way i did it what's so much more authentic is if you figure out the way for you certainly with some, you know parameters respect empathy humility like all these things but at the same time like this is my path if you want to take it great if you want to veer off it great you ju just be all i'm telling you is to be you and and that's the best way to be a leader and and so I, th I think that's the kind of this this critical piece and and so that I, the weight of that responsibility felt felt pretty strong to me to to keep speaking for those reasons. Funny because so I was in college also in the nineties and um, you know I showed up wearing work boots, jeans, t shirt, and a flannel and did not know that I was part of the queer community. Um, <laughs> everybody else knew. That's it. what I wore. And I was like, that's just what you wear, you know, like what. Um, and, and, um, you know, my, my evolution of coming out, you know, first, uh, you know, in sort of a question mark way and then coming out as trans and queer. And it's like, so at one point I was just so visibly queer because I, I, the way I looked and then I started taking hormones and then I look like this and like, you met, like, I, I had never had to come out before that because you just walk in a room and you're just, you're just part of the conversation. It just is. And right. then I'm like, oh, I totally get what femme women g go through. Like that, that's right. They have to constantly kind of come out. And so for me now, my activism generally is just being like this out trans business owner. And before you came on, we were talking about the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce at the NGLZC, um, the certification for business owners around being LGBTQ uh, business enterprises. And I love that we have like formal ways of being visible you know, on our websites and, and all this other stuff. And I just think to me, it's like, I'm constantly trying to figure out like how to, yeah, like how to show up, right? Like the authenticity piece and, and all of this. Um, and it sounds like that talk though, was, this, little, this little talk really did ignite <laughs> for you uh, a passion to start doing this work, which led to a TEDx. I have to talk about this TEDx because I saw you write, you know, and I asked you to draft me an intro and you said like, it went viral. And I was like, all right, let me just see, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, I click and I'm like, five and a half million views. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. That will qualify. That's amazing. You know, and like any one of us would be happy with 5,000, you know, <laughs> TEDx views. Sure. Um, so what, and, and then you've done more than one TEDx as well. So I don't want to miss, miss that, but what led to this and what do you think caught the spark? Like, why do you think it's been seen so many times? 
Well, I think part, part of it was, I think it was like the next evolution of it, right? It was, um, the speaking community in Boulder is pretty small and they do a double, you know, double blind, um, application process, you know, so they don't see the names of the people, but at the same time it was 2013 or whatever it was. And so I mean, they knew I was applying and I was like the only one that was openly addressing these issues. So they kind of put two and two together, I assume. And I remember sitting down, um, with the the guy that runs it here, who's a genius and a great friend of mine. And I was like, well, I want to be more expansive. Like it needs to be bigger, right? It's speaking to more people. It needs to be more broad. And I, and then it was also like, do I really, I mean, that ignite speech set like the literally the beginning of it is my name is Ash and I am so gay. Right. It was like, I was saying that to half a million people and that like a little bit like kind of freaked me out. And I was like, I don't know what this Ted thing is going to do, but like, I am more than that, right? That like that's kind of where I went. And he was like, sure. Also, like, dance with the one that brought you. Like, <laughs> like you have 10 minutes. Like, what are you gonna be more passionate about? Like, get to the heart of it. Like, what can you you do what you want? And then worked with the speaker coach and you know, kind of like we're through some of these stories of just like lived human experience, right? And 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 again, like saying those things almost 10 years ago now in a stage that people weren't necessarily saying, but it was that same mentality of like, let me tell you what it's like for me to come out of a closet. And like, let's talk about how those things are relatable. And you know what that feeling is in the pit of your stomach. When you are about to tell somebody something and you don't know if it's going to end a friendship, a relationship, if it's going to make them think differently about you, if it's going to make them want distance from you to keep their kids away from you. Like there are all of these things. They're going to think differently than you. It like that feeling is the same. Whatever comes out of your mouth could that. be vastly different, but like, then yeah. we can talk about who has it harder. This, the, you know what I mean? Like we can go into those things, but like, let's start, like, you know what it feels like. Don't tell me you can't relate. Right. Like, don't tell me that. I feel like that's where I am now with with, you know, things that are happening in, in, in Florida and people are like, well, I'm, my, kids, my kids aren't trans or I don't live there. Like, no, it matters. It matters because you know what it feels like to be that kid because if you've ever been excluded. You know what that feels like. And imagine, you know what I mean? Like, because people want to relate, they want to connect, but there's this like, A, apathy. But I think more than that, like this paralysis of politeness of people like don't, they don't, I can't imagine what it's like to be trans Therefore, I can't imagine what it's like to be one of those kids. Can you imagine being in high school or middle school? It sucked, right? Like for so many of us, it was so hard. And imagine if the state legislature and the governor were coming at you or your friends, right? Like you can imagine what that would feel like. Wouldn't you want an adult to stand up for you? Wouldn't you want an adult, somebody with power to have a hard conversation for you on your behalf? in the humanness of it, right? Like we're not that far if we can just imagine. And, and, and so I just wanted to open that door to be like, it's actually not that different. And sometimes as queer people, we want that distinction, right? We want it to be different. Like, yeah, but also like, let's connect. The, the more the merrier on the bandwagon, like all allies, like come on. <laughs> the I more like we this, can get the better. There's this phrase you said about coming out is really about having hard conversations. And I just like that really resonated with me. You know, you were saying like, if you had to tell your kids you were getting divorced or telling your best friend you have cancer, 
Like these, these are the kinds of hard conversations that I think are relatable. Like even if we've never had the, either of those two, we, we could relate that that would be a hard conversation. And then when you equate that to coming out, it's like, oh, you know, and everything you just said earlier about how it will impact possibly relationships and friendships. And so I love that you're, that you're building a bigger tent. You know, that's, that's sort of my thing too, is like, how do we bring more people into these conversations um, and, and make us all want to work together around what the world like is and how we all react to each other. Um, you've now turned this, you know, this ignite talk like into a whole career, um, which is amazing. Uh, getting a chance to talk in front of some really big companies and um, major events. And so I'm really curious how your network has helped you as, as that's grown over the last decade. Cause now you're this overnight success, 10 years in the making you know, like you've made it, Ash. Um, and so uh, when you think about your network, you know, we have sort of the inner circles of people that, you know, you're going to stay in touch with, but then you have your sort of second and third tiers out or layers out, the people that you see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't recently. And these are people you like and they like you, you sort of should preface with that. How right. do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections? Like, do you have any habits, philosophies or practices that help you stay in touch and be top of mind. Yeah, I think it's it's just being it's being mindful. Like I have a I have a calendar of every professional friend's birthday that I know. Like it just like it's like an excuse to reach out or people that I go that I go to conferences with and I know that it's coming up. Like I think those means of of interaction. I mean certainly you know, LinkedIn and social media, I, I think is, is a good way. But I think those genuine connections are that email. Like I just got um, one from a friend of mine that I hadn't talked to in four years that was like, I moved to a bigger office and I just packed up your book, thought of you, hope you and your family are well. That was it. You know what I mean? Like it was, it's not, it doesn't have to be, it's not something you're going to talk to every day, but it's that, hey, I'm thinking of you and here's why. And I don't, and there was nothing attached to it for him it wasn't a like hey i need a recommendation or you know a lot of times i'll get a, i'll make connections that are like hey there's this cool panel i have this cool panel idea i think you'd be great can we put something together like i think they're that but i think it's more like you are on the top of mind taking those moments when you actually think of someone to tell them that you did right or you you see that they had some success and you take the time not just to like like the post but shoot him a message. It's like, Hey, Brandon, that's so awesome. I knew you were going to do great things. Right. And, and I feel like that comes back around that you kind of continue to be that cheerleader for people or you check in with them and it can be overwhelming. So I try to do, you know, I I'm like a big checklist kind of person. So depending on the time of year, kind of how busy things are, I was able to be really good at it during, during COVID when everything was shut down. because I wasn't traveling at all, but it's, you know, three times a week, I reach out. And if I'm really good, I do it 10. You know what I mean? But if you think about that, 10 people a week, you're talking 500 people a year that you're just shooting a text to, right? But 10 people a week, it's two people a day. That's easy. And again, you just it just takes a little bit of time. Something you can do over lunch. You can easily do it on your phone, but it maintains your connections, I think, to what's going on in other people's lives. So I'm like, hey, I wrote a book or look at this blog post, right? Like it isn't, and I have no, it's not like, hey, I need a gig. I'm sure you guys have the budget for it, right? Like it is, it is much more genuine than that because when so, when you know somebody, if if somebody did that to you 
and you were top of mind for them, then like, you know, things start connecting and you're like, oh, actually I've got this great idea for something. I want to bounce it off of you. Like it becomes more real. And I would say out of those 500 people, probably 350 of them respond. And other people, it's like, I have a bad email or whatever. You know what I mean? One, like I shoot one thing, they shoot one thing back and that's it. You know, there's probably 50 of them where we go back and forth a couple of times and probably four of them where it's like, Hey, let's jump on a zoom call. Let's like, let's just connect and see each other for a half an hour. And sometimes it takes you a month to get it on the calendar, but it's that, you know? So I think it's, it's the effort that's important um, to a lot of people in a lot of different places, knowing that it isn't going to overwhelm you, knowing that like, they're just as busy as you are. Right. Like it's like this person is going to like bog you down. It's just a, I don't know, to me, it's that personal connection that makes those relationships and those networks so strong. I, I really, really appreciate you outlining this in some detail. I'm curious, how long have you been following this kind of process of, of sort of reaching out to people with this kind of, it, feel, it feels like uh, e- even three a week, you know, like yeah. it's a pretty consistent um, clip. It was during, like in the pandemic. I mean, I feel like we got, you know, we, it was, it became very clear, anybody, obviously to everyone, like it became very clear, very quickly that in-person events were going to stop. And so I had the time and really needed to, and I usually, you know, if I would speak at an event and get a bunch of cards, like, I think I would do it, but it was never consistent. Right. And so now it's more consistent. It's, it's like part of um, my weekly to-do list. And, you know, sometimes I, there's times of summer kids get sick or whatever, you know, where I slack, but I, you know, I try to make up for it and I have some grace with myself on it. But even, even at that, even if I blow it off every other week, right? No, it's I'm true. still talking I mean, 200 people, right? Hundreds like, of people that you're going right, to exactly. touch base with. Um, so I, I actually started doing something similar because I always had great intentions but I had, I, I, you know, I could buy a stack of a stack of uh, cards, and and then I can't find the stamps. I mean, right now I bought this really beautiful <laughs> card uh, at a little shop when I was in Portland, Oregon, and um, it was perfect. It's a perfect card for my friend. And I finally wrote the note on it, and I finally addressed it, and I have to go find the stamp. So what I right. usually do now <clears throat> is I have Postable. So if you've if you've heard of Postable and folks listening, you should look this up. Postable.com has a free mailing, uh, like a free address book. And so when I first did it, I just was using it for the address book. And I was being very thoughtful about which colleagues I put on the address book. And then it finally dawned on me that they have a free address book because they, they sell you cards <laughs> and they will ship the cards for you. And so finally, I just threw money in so that it was like, I have to do this because I've now like pre-committed the money. And so right. I send birthday cards on a regular basis. And when someone does something or, or there's a, uh, there's sometimes a lot of time sympathy cards, you know, or at the, the right moment. And so I no longer have to be like, oh, I don't have a card like that. Or I don't know what my stamps are. That's I don't know so what I was going right. I can stop and like, they're all blank cards and I just write whatever I want, but I can type it and I can delete it and I can type it again. Right. <laughs> I don't have, to have like the perfect handwriting. And so it's sometimes it's like having good intentions and having a good system or process uh, to couple with that. So that's been mine. But I, I think one of the things you said was you also text people. I'm curious, where are you in the middle of your work day? Like, what do you do to like have that moment? And I mentioned that only because I don't commute anymore. And so some of the things I would have done on a commute, I no longer have that sort of built in time to 
to idly be sitting around. So I'm curious, like, when do you, what's the trigger for you to think, oh, let me, let me send some texts. Yeah. Well, I typically, I would, so I, when we did the, um, when my wife came home, she was in the office five days a week and then we kind of shifted some stuff around. So I'm kind of in a basement and there's in this actual room, no windows. And the ones that are out there are like the basement kind of dog's eye view windows. And so it's just dark and cold. And I just have to go upstairs for all the things. And so I make myself get up and walk out of this room and take a breath, see the kids, grab a coffee, like do whatever. It's like during those kind of when I would be walking to a water cooler kind of moments that I just pop one off, you know what I mean? Or like, we'll, um, I, we take the kids to daycare a few days a week and, um, try to arrive there or, you know what I mean? It's like, just those like micro moments that you have or like in line at the grocery store. Like I I'll have it on my to-do list of whoever, you know, kind of like set my week on Monday. I've got, you know, three to 10 people I'm going to reach out to. And then I just put their names on there. I already know that their numbers are in my phone. Um, and, and it just becomes something that I do. And it's, you know, texting is the other thing. Like you could shoot an email at 11 o'clock at night. It's not a big deal. Texting kind of has to happen in that reasonable time knowing their time zone and, and all the things. So yeah, it are the, it's that like I go up and make tea or do whatever and just take a second. Do you have a list of people then that you are tracking like that you throughout the year, you know, you, these are people you'd want to reach out to? Yeah, I used to use um, kind of an app to track that, but that was more, it was like a where you scan business cards and they auto-populate into a thing. And, but that didn't see, I just wasn't getting business cards anymore. So, uh, cause I wasn't in person. Um, so it turned into now I've got it, whether it's like somebody um, that reaches out on LinkedIn or a friend that's a reference that's like, you got to, you know, you need to meet this person. And I, I feel like I kind of have a running somewhat formal list. And then that text list is like, you know, there's probably maybe. 50 people that would be on that that are just like a, a hey but the other one is just kind of usually and i like sometimes i'll do it based on um industry you know what i mean it's like uh, i work with a lot of universities and so i'll go through a phase where it's like hit you know some of the more prominent connections i have at schools or um i'm you know there's going to be a conference and i know these 30 companies are going to be there and so i'll kind of reach out to a contact each like it's it's somewhat it's somewhat planned only because for me to take a day, a month to kind of plan it or to plan three months at a time is so much easier. And then just being able to be like, I'm going to email Alex, Tina, and want, Susie, right? This is the yeah. distinction because a lot of people tell me that they, they do act on instinct. So like when they think of somebody, they take the action, which I think is an important thing to cultivate because a lot of people might think of someone's name and not reach out. So, you know, yes, if you think of somebody, go ahead and do the quick, easy outreach. But you're actually taking a moment to do some thoughtfulness and even some some strategy about like, okay, you know, thinking ahead three months from now, uh, three months from now, it's going to be, you know, September, October. uh, You know, let me, let me just sort of say hello to some folks right now. And you never know, like, you don't expect like one-to-one responses or anything like that. It's just that, like you're, you're putting yourself and your energy out into the world instead of just mm-hmm. waiting for inbound. Like, you know, inbound exactly. is more likely to come when you're out there in the world. And if you couldn't be out there because of conferences, 
being shut down, you had to find another way to do it. So I, I really appreciate you sort of spelling some of this out. One thing that you made me think of that a friend suggested a long time ago, maybe on the show even, um, and I do it really randomly a few times a year. I will scroll to my oldest text messages. Oh, smart. And I will look at, I will look at messages from a year ago, basically. I'll, whatever time, whenever that is, like right now, I'll just scroll back to May 1st last year and just look sort of the month before and the month after and just be like, huh, you know, you know, and it's sometimes it's people that I just haven't talked to, but like I had their phone number. Like, right, <laughs> right, point, right, right. So yeah. I had their phone number. And right now, I imagine if I were doing it now, it would be a lot of people that I've done events for because I always get their number because it's all virtual. We have to make sure we can connect in case something happens. And yeah. so, you know, you send all these just in case text threads. So I think it's going to be really interesting as I go back and do this. I'm going to, you know, I could even send a little message to a whole thread of people that we all, we're all in an old speaking loop. <laughs> be like, Hey, right. Everyone. Yeah. So it's, you know, take advantage of the data that we have stored often just on our phone that we aren't thinking about. All right. My final question for you, Ash, uh, is my favorite question. So, you know, we're going to stay in touch because I already know that we're going to stay in touch, but let's say it's a year from now and we're talking about all of your successes. I want to know what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I think, oh boy, I'm getting back in person for sure. I feel like that is just, it's huge. Um, that's just how I connect in the, in the best way. Um, I think there's nothing like sitting down and having a coffee or having a drink with somebody that you see once a year, right? Like just that personal connection. And I think delivering, you know, emotional, engaging, action driving keynotes over Zoom is just harder. And like people want to move. They, I feel like people are so hungry to be in person that I think the audience is going to be better. And I think there'll always be a hybrid environment, which I think expands inclusivity, right? Like if you're talking about being inclusive, whether that's budgets, whether that's geographically where they are, whether that's whatever, like there is nothing. I mean, the more the merrier, like we said earlier, right? You can either have 200 people in person or 2000 people virtual, like your greater impact is going to be with numbers. But I think there's something about that personal connection. So, so I, so I would hope, that it's, uh, I hope that would be um, one of the things would be that coming back on kind of full steam. Um, I also feel like um, I, I've had a really good time doing collaborative work through the pandemic, whether that's been panels or really connecting with people on the broader sense. I feel like for me at least, and, and knowing my background and knowing what the TED Talks are about, it's very niche, right? Like it was very LGBTQ inclusivity. And now I feel like inclusivity as a leadership trait, as a personal brand strategy is critical. And so I feel like all of these worlds that I feel so passionate about, right? Inclusivity, leadership, intersectionality, marginalization, youth, recruiting, like all of these things that are happening are overlapping. And like, that's how people are starting to see DEI. And that's really exciting for me. I'm working on a uh, offering right now that's, you know, but what if I say the wrong thing? Because I feel like so many people we talked about before, like they want to be there, they're ready. They want to start to have hard conversations, but they're so afraid that they're not going to say the right thing. They're going to offend somebody. And I think mostly they're not going to sound as progressive as they think they are, that they don't say anything. And like, 
that's the worst thing. Like I would so much rather have somebody ask me something that's offensive, knowing where their heart is and what their, you know, would underscore like what their intention is, than be too scared to say something. But I've preached that forever. But then I start to have conversations about race and I do the exact same thing. Right. And so how do we empower people to have those general connections, to build those networks where they have that trust, where people know that you are trying to be a better leader. You're trying to teach yourself. You're not putting it on somebody else to try to teach you. You're doing some education on your own, but you like have to get into practice and actually do it. So that's something that seems that seems fun to me to to get people to have more and more of these challenging conversations because it's the only way that we get better as leaders. Amazing. I, I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. Uh, we can maybe do it in person even. How can people find you and follow your work? Absolutely. So I am on um, all the regular social media at Ash Beckham. So Twitter is at Ash Beckham, um, Facebook, LinkedIn. And then I didn't, didn't get Ash Beckham on Instagram. So it's at the Ash Beckham. So yeah, that's it. And my website, ashbeckham.com. And there's a contact me directly. And it's a, um, my agent and I are the only ones that ever see any of that. So it is um, a way to get a hold of me directly. Really? We will have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Ash, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been amazing. Oh, it was amazing, Robbie. Can't wait to do it again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ash. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 286. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. I asked earlier, how do you create a product or service that sells? The answer is simpler than you think. You do it by asking your likely prospects. If you've read my book, Small List Big Results, or attended one of my Wake Up Your Network pop-up masterminds, you know that the first step is identifying likely prospects from within the list of people who already know, love, and trust you. Your network. Once you've done that, your next step is running research calls with those prospects so you know exactly what they need and create a product or service that fills that need. But that's where things sometimes get tricky. What will you say? How will you line up those calls? When should you follow up? And that's where my idea to offer workshop comes in. The idea to offer workshop is a one-day event that empowers you to get past the mental blocks and technical hurdles so you can craft specific, strategic, personalized outreach that will resonate with your prospects. What's included? Small group work time and live coaching. This is not a webinar or training. You will have time to refine your list, draft your outreach, and get real-time feedback. You will leave with not just a final list of prospects, but an action plan and materials to get the research you need to have the best shot at creating a successful product or service. You'll even get outreach templates you can customize. You'll enter with a list and leave with the knowledge of how to run research calls, how to line them up, what to say and when to follow up and have specific and strategic outreach to achieve this part of the launch process. When is it? Saturday, July 16th from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific or 11.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. How much? $500, which I will match if you continue working with me. If you're ready to take that next step, sign up at robbysamuels.podia.com. Space is limited and the session will be capped at just 12 people. 
Let's make your successful business a reality. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions and get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.